Amen. You may be seated. Wow, that was wonderful. Sounded fantastic. We are working on the everything today, of course, but uh, if you were here a couple of months ago when we tried this, today is going a whole lot smoother. Uh, sound, the video is going great. I am noticing something right now. I cannot see the pulpit at all to read my uh, Bible. So if someone knows where to find a light switch, that will definitely help out. Well, let's begin. If you don't mind, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. And uh, once again, we sure appreciate all the volunteers helping us out. We have a great core group that has decided to be a part of this church plant. And this is our third time to meet here at the school. And every time it gets a little smoother, it gets a little bit easier. And uh, even this time we picked up. Thanks, guys. That's great. Picked up a couple of things that we're going to add and just tweak a little bit, but uh, it's really coming along. I think by August we're going to have just a fantastic package to prevent, present a, a church that's, that's been going now for, for close to a year and is stepping into a new area, but we have lots of great volunteers in place, a band that is phenomenal, a mediocre pastor, but everyone else is okay. All right. Well, if you don't mind, go ahead. If you're not there already, turn to the book of Ephesians, and we will begin our study on Ephesians tonight. Uh, we just completed our study on Hebrews. Wonderful, wonderful. I could, I could have camped out in the book of Hebrews easily for, uh, for a few more weeks, but I think we cut it off at 15 or 16 weeks. Uh, same with uh, the book of Ephesians. You could go a lot slower through this and be fine, but uh, we're going to try to get through this in around 12 different sermons. There's so much meat presented here. But if you don't mind, go ahead and look here with me. Ephesians chapter 1. And tonight our goal is to get through verse 14. So let's read this. I'll read it out loud. You follow along with me. And then we'll go back through and look at some of these verses individually and see some of the major points that Paul is getting across here to the church at Ephesus. Beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you. And peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. 
Dear Holy Father, we pray that you would apply this word to our minds and to our hearts. May we focus on it. May we concentrate on it. May we understand that these are your words that you have given to us to better understand you and to better understand salvation and to better understand true grace and the grace that comes from you. That it is completely unmerited. It is full and 100% grace, even though we deserve judgment for the sins that we have committed. Place us in our heart. And may we understand this more as we leave here this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we begin back at verse 1. Uh, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, we obviously know there were 12 original apostles. We know one was a devil from the beginning, as Jesus said. We know one betrayed Jesus and was replaced. But Paul is also referred to as an apostle. Because he was also, if you remember called by Christ. Now, he was actually called by Christ after Christ had died, after Christ had risen from the dead, after Christ had ascended into heaven. He shows up and calls uh, Paul to be an apostle. So if you don't mind, let's look at that. Now, now we have not studied an entire book written by Paul in some time. I wouldn't do this on every uh, chapter or every book that I'm preaching on Paul, but starting off the book of Ephesians, it's nice to kind of get an idea of who wrote the book and where they're coming from. So if you don't mind, hold your place there. We will be returning quickly, but flip on over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Look on over to Acts chapter 9. Now, as you find your place there in Acts chapter 9, you will begin to remember, realize, or remind yourself that Paul was not always Paul, but was who? He was Saul. That is right. It was referred to as, he's referred to as Saul uh, previous to his, his salvation. After that, we see him referred to as Paul all the time. So same, same individual, just so you know you're not, just in case you're worried or concerned about that. We're same guy, Saul, Paul. Now, if you look at chapter 8, probably right there on the next page over, if you look at verses 1 through 3, you see an incident where uh, Stephen, a phenomenal man of God, a man who loved God, a man who could preach. I mean, if you read the sermon right before Stephen's uh, stoning, it is a phenomenal work where he brings the Old Testament to life and shows all of its fruition, all of its climax and who Jesus Christ is. And it's a remarkable sermon, wonderful sermon to show the whole story, the meta narrative that God has written and presented to humanity. But the Jews did not like it. They picked up stones. They threw them at him and they killed him. And this is the first time we see Saul mentioned in verse three. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we see that in Acts 7. We see this in Acts 8. He's mentioned over here with the stoning of Stephen. He stood there acknowledging that it was the right thing to do. His stamp of approval was on it. He, had, uh, he guarded the people's jackets. He's like, yes, put your jacket here. And yes, here's a stone. And, and he oversaw this whole event take place. And here in verse 3 of chapter 8, we see that he was ravaging the church. That's us. That's believers, right? The, the, the believers, the followers of Christ were beginning to expand and they're telling others and they're telling others. In the beginning of chapter Acts, of, of uh, Acts, we see that 3,000 were saved. Then the number grew to 5,000. Then the number began to grow daily where they could not keep count. So what did they begin to do? People like Saul began to rise up and put, a, put, a, put the pressure to stop all this. 
And uh, it was this where he's going door to door to door. He's knocking on the doors. And if there are Christians in the house, then he hauls them off as if they've committed the vilest crime imaginable to throw them into prison. Now, something radical happens, though, to Paul. And it's important to understand this. Uh, where he was at, ravaging the church, uh, anti-Christ. He was anti-Jesus. He was doing everything he could to squash Christianity, to get rid of the name Jesus, to get rid of its followers. But then something amazing happens. He is going diametrically opposed to Christ, anti-fully, arresting people, throwing them in prison, wants them to die, to within moments he goes in about face and he is pursuing Christ for the rest of his life, goes on to write the majority of the New Testament, 13 books, and is just amazing at the transition. What happens? It is grace. It is grace that steps in. God bestows. He doesn't deserve it. He's going the opposite way as full as he can, as fast as he can. But then God steps in. He calls. Paul has to come along and regenerates him, gives him a new heart where he comes along willingly and pursues Christ for the rest of his life. A changed man. But let's look at this before we actually get into uh, the book of Ephesians tonight. So if you look at Acts chapter 9, I'm just going to read some of this. And it's basically a narrative. It doesn't need much explanation, but it's a good a good start to begin this book of Ephesians to see where he's coming from, to see what he was doing, and then to see how God steps in and rearranges, changes everything. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read for a while through this. Uh, but Paul, still breathing, saw at that point, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, who are those that belonging to the way? Was well, Brian just just said earlier, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So originally, uh, we were referred to as followers or people who belong to the way. Uh, very descriptive. So if he found any that were belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He goes to the high priest to get permission to do this. Whose side would the high priest be on, right? The Christians or on the side of Saul here? Obviously the side of Saul. They are the ones who put Christ to death. They want this name put to death and his followers put to death. They want this episode erased. They got rid of the main guy. Let's get rid of everyone else and squash this thing once and for all. Uh, Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias, of course, knowing who Saul is, he says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the high priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, 
for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And here Paul's uh, apostleship is established. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now look here, just at verse 20. Uh, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now look at verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. This is the exact message that he was anti. This is the exact message that he was hauling people off to prison if they acknowledged, if they admitted that Jesus was the son of God. He has completely changed. He is about face. And now he has gone the opposite way. Instead of going into these synagogues, going house to house, finding those who say Jesus is the son of God, arresting them, uh, hoping that they die in prison, hoping they're executed. Now he is the one. This radical change, God steps in. He was pursuing the opposite. God steps in. He gives him grace and forgives him fully. And now Saul, Paul, realizes who Jesus truly is. Verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, if we know, if you remember, if you recall a little bit about Saul, he was trained in the scriptures. He was trained by the scribes. He knew the word of God, but yet he would not, could not see that Jesus was the fulfillment of it all. That Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed one, God's one and only savior that had come. But then he sees it. And now you have a man who is trained in the scriptures, who knows the scriptures. And as we read his works, we see as he brings forth the Old Testament, applies it here to Christ. This is a man who has been trained and been prepared by God for this purpose. And he confounds the Jews. He goes into the synagogues, the very places that wanted him to go get the Christians. Now he is in the synagogues trying to convert them to Christianity. And the Jews are confounded. Why? Because he's making all these connections. The prophecies that we've talked about before that Christ fulfilled. The typologies that are fulfilled in Christ. He's making all these connections in front of them and they are completely confounded. And they can't understand. How could this man who days ago was arresting, throwing them in prison, is now preaching the opposite message? They're totally confounded by this. But now look at verse 23. They're so confounded That something's got to stop, right? When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So within days, the primary persecutor of the Christians is now the one who is primarily being persecuted. So here we see this radical change in this man. What can bring about such a change? 
only this, this regeneration that can be brought by God that you as a believer have had as well, where you were anti-Christ. You were going the opposite direction, and then Christ steps in. You hear the gospel proclaimed that in Jesus and only through him can our sins be forgiven. That's through him and his life that we can receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. You hear this gospel message, whether it was a vacation Bible school or by your parents or at a revival meeting or in church at some point, and God draws you to him, and that you come. And Saul came and was radically changed. He is a new creation, as you are as well. He went on to say later that if Christ has come, then you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So indeed it was for this individual. So just a glimpse into his life. Now, let's look back at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he opens up the book of Ephesians by totally giving credit to God. It was the will of God. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. We carry on to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he establishes here who he is writing to. He is obviously writing to Christians. He is writing to saints. Are saints just a couple of people that are in this particular town? Absolutely not. We are all saints All believers are sanctified by the same source. All believers get the exact source of righteousness. It's Jesus Christ himself. We do not believe in a hierarchy of saints or a few people are saints and the rest of us are not. The saints and the ain'ts as it's sometimes called, but that we are all saints. And he acknowledges this here. Now, verse two, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is beautiful to think how this man. Uh, most of the time would would have this this introduction to what he was about to write. And there are two, two, two items of critical importance here that are really of utmost importance to every human being. And that is grace and peace to you. Think about that just for a moment. Uh, the, the great prayer of the Jews was shalom, you know, to, be, to have peace with God. But every man, every woman, every child, we're, we're born against God. Ephesians, as we'll get to here in chapter 2, says that, that we are born enemies of God, objects of His wrath. So we do not have peace with God. Well, why don't we have peace with God? Can't we just naturally acquire that peace on our own? But we can't, right? We have a big problem, a three-letter word that's invaded our souls, our very being, and that is sin. And sin we have all committed. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy. God is anti-sin. Uh, sin must be punished because God is just. So that puts us naturally against God. We are not at peace with God. So when Paul says, peace be with you, how can this possibly be? Well, they are believers. What have they believed in? In verse 1, it tells us they are the ones who are faithful in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ that peace is made with God and with us. And if you are in Jesus Christ, then you have peace with God. If you are not, then there is no peace with God and you suffer the wrath of God throughout life and ultimately the full measure of that wrath in eternity in hell. So this is something we desperately need, the peace of God. And he bestows it upon these here. He announces that they are the recipients of it as we are the recipients of the peace of God if Christ Jesus is your Savior. And also he says grace here. This word grace 
unmerited favor is the best way to remember this. Andrew Anderson is going to be teaching specifically on grace for our discipleship time tonight. If you'd like to stick around and stay for that, grace is going to be coming up a lot during this series. But he says, grace to you, completely unmerited favor of God. And you can see, as we read earlier about Saul, Paul, uh, how he would emphasize and always does emphasize grace because he did nothing absolutely nothing to deserve the favor of Christ, right? He, he didn't have one check in the, in the positive. No one ever does. But he can obviously say, and we can see, that he was going the opposite way. Anyone who believed in Christ, he was breathing murderous threats. He wanted to kill them. He was throwing them in prison. But now he has been radically saved. Not because he, he worked halfway there, then God did his part, and he did his part. And now look at that. That equals salvation. He was going the opposite way. God steps in, radically saves him by pure grace. And so we see this example, and we see this a changed man who was going the opposite way, steeped in sin, anti-Christ, going the opposite way, who's been saved by grace. So he loves this grace Why does he love this grace so much? Because he understands it. He understands that at the core, at the heart, we are all those who deserve God's judgment. We're all those who deserve his wrath because we've sinned against God. We can only rely on his grace. And he understands fully. He didn't attribute, contribute 1% and God did 99%. But he was saved 100%. By the grace of God. And we begin to see this in the opening chapter here of Ephesians. That he is a big favor of a big fan of grace. As well as we should be as well. Peace. I've already covered this. But it is to be in a right relationship with God. So here he, he announces that they are saints. They're those who have been made right. Made holy. Because they get the credential of Jesus Christ himself. His life is what we get that makes us a saint. That we are the ones who get receive the grace of God, even though we deserve his judgment. We're the ones who receive the peace of God, even though we deserve his wrath. So these little words you see written at the opening of Paul's letters are often just overlooked. And people kind of jump a few verses down to get to the meat of it. But there's a lot at stake right there at the middle. That if you can grasp, it can radically change and, and shape you into a stronger believer. Well, let's get going here. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, Paul opens up here just immediately acknowledging God, praising God for for giving, uh, bestowing spiritual blessings from heaven. Uh, This is not something we deserve. Again, we don't deserve this and now god has to do this a popular movement now uh within many churches on tv if you call them that uh you might call them pseudo or fake churches is that they command god and god has to obey them and god has to bless them if they speak the words that is not the case at all we do not control god all right we don't tell god what to do and then he has to give us something and here paul says thank you Uh, for bestowing spiritual blessings upon us because truly we deserve nothing. It's all at the grace of God. So it's important to note that the blessing of God does not come to us because we in and of ourselves deserve it, but is in Christ. Christ deserves all the blessings. He's the only one that lived a perfect sinless life. And it's when we are found in him, when he is our savior, we are united with him 
that we receive the blessings of God. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. This is a powerful verse. It, it echoes, as we just read through Hebrews, a uh, passage there that we studied, probably the sermon before last, but that Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith, that He begins it, He completes it, that He is the ultimate preserver of our faith. Not only does He have our end, uh, glorification that definitely will come. We know that our inheritance is in heaven. No one, nothing can take that away. We are children of God, always will be a child of God. But it's also this origination of our salvation, that he begins our salvation. We choose him because he first chose us. He loves us, regenerates us, and we pursue him then. And we see this echoed here in this verse, even as he chose us in him. When? Look back down. Not when you were good enough, not when you deserved it, right? Not when you went to church X amount of times and then qualified to be a Christian. Not when you uh, did certain things just right and got the attention of God. And he said, yeah, you know what? It's time to save him. Not at all. It's, It's beyond us. It says, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is beautiful. God is, of course, outside of time. He speaks and creates everything. But even before the earth is formed, you were chosen in him to be saved, to receive the spiritual blessings from him, to be a child of God. Is this, it, it, it will blow your mind as you begin to think about this. And as Paul is writing this, he is letting them know your salvation is far bigger than you can even grasp. That you are now recipients of God's grace. That you're recipients of of his peace. That you've been sanctified. You're made saints in his eyes. That he was thinking of you even before the foundations of the earth. Even before there was a piece of dirt. Even before there was a H2O molecule. That your salvation was set in stone. And he's, he's throwing this out there. To let them know that their salvation is a big deal. In the eyes of God. And that he gets all the glory indeed for our salvation. Uh, The last part of this verse 4. We should be holy and blameless before him. How can a sinner be holy and blameless before the God who knows our every sin? I mean think about that just for a moment. How can a person possibly be truly sinless and holy before a God who is omniscient. Who knows everything who knows every thought the Bible says, who knows every action, who knows every word that's ever come off of your tongue. Are you truly, could you be truly holy and righteous in and of yourself? And the answer is a resounding no. Uh, We all, anyone in here that knows me knows I have sinned. If anyone knows you, they know you have sinned, all right? Uh, We have all sinned. And now imagine God who knows every thought that's going through our head. Obviously, we've all sinned before God. But how can we be holy And blameless, as he says here in verse 4, this is the great message of the good news. That it is not our record. It is pure grace that we receive. That we don't get our record. We don't stand before God and God says, let me see how much bad, how much good. Let me weigh it all out. See if you get to come into heaven. But you get righteousness. You get holiness because you get the record of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled all righteousness. And on the cross, he takes our record and pays the price for it. And he gives us his record, bestowing upon us perfect, eternal holiness. When we stand before the judge, who is Jesus Christ, he knows our sins are forgiven because he paid for our sins. And he knew this even before the foundation of the world. So it's this beautiful picture of salvation and how grand it is in the eyes of God, how secure we are in the eyes of God. And there's no getting out of this salvation. It is secured by God himself. Let's carry on. Verse five in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Uh, Again, All these passages are giving God all of the glory for our salvation. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Again, grace is emphasized once again. This grace is beyond anything we can imagine. It is glorious with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Um, That's historical information here. This is we get going in this with uh, the, the, the t- period of the Reformation. Andrew's going to be teaching on this. Well, had five primary points of it, the five solas. And Andrew will be teaching on these later. But one I just want to bring to your emphasis right now is sola deo gloria. One of the most familiar and one that will come to your mind. Right. And it could be interpreted glory to God alone or to God be the glory alone. And as I read. This first chapter of Ephesians, this continues to echo in my head. He is removing the credit from them. If they thought they deserved this, earned this, did anything to, to, to get their salvation. And he is giving all of the glory to God and to God alone for our salvation. He is letting them understand that they are objects of God's wrath in and of themselves. They are sinners in and of themselves. They deserve, deserve justice, but they're, being, they're receiving uh, sanctification. They're receiving peace. They're receiving grace. They are adopted as children of God even before the foundation of the world. So if there's salvation, who gets the glory for such a thing? Not them, not Paul. Paul knows he got no glory. He did nothing to deserve it. It is all of God. 100, 110% if you're one of those kind of people, all right? But he gets all of the glory for the salvation. Uh, Let's carry on. Uh, Do most Christians seem to believe that God saved them or that they saved themselves or that it was a combination of the two? And this is quite interesting. As you read the book of Ephesians, I'm not going to answer that for you. I want you to go back and read the first few verses of Ephesians. Read the whole chapter, maybe read into chapter 2 and think on such a thing. Let me think, did, did, did God save me? Uh, did I save myself? Or was there a combination of us saving ourselves? Will we get to heaven and high five like, hey, good job, Jesus. You did your part. I did my part. He, he gives you glory and you give him glory. You, you shake hands and go into heaven. Does it work that way? Uh, I believe as you begin to read this, Paul is anti that. He's going the other way. He said, God gets all the glory for our salvation. That this grace is so big. It's so beautiful that uh, he, he, he gets all coming from him. So he gets his mind around this and he begins to teach this to the Ephesians here. And he's teaching it to us as well. Uh, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Again, the word grace is coming up here at the end. So this word redemption through His blood is just, is just beautiful. Uh, the word redemption, we recall it from other passages. We could give many cross-references. One that comes to mind quickly is Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Uh, this is, we're reminded of this word and how it was used historically that a, that a slave would be on the auction blocks and had absolutely nothing to attribute to his freedom, to, to get himself free, but that someone could, could pay the redemption price, the ransom price. They could buy him, own him, but they could release him also. And that this is the, the context this word is being used, that we were, we were like slaves. We had nothing. We had po- white pockets, all right? Absolutely nothing. We're being bound by sin. But Christ steps in. He pays the price for our freedom and sets us free to pursue him. And so it's this beautiful thing where, where, the, where the person on the auction block has nothing. I mean, what, how much can you contribute you, you have absolutely nothing, and then someone buys you and sets you free, and that we are redeemed. What was the price paid for this redemption for you and I? We find the answer in verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through what? Through His blood. How could, on earth could we possibly be set free from sin? How on earth could we possibly be set free from the curse that we deserve from God? We've sinned against Him uh, the law tells us if we sin against God, we deserve the curse of God. How on earth can we set ourselves free when we have nothing to give? We can't. But in Him, we can. Through what? Through His blood. Not the blood of an animal, but through the blood of the incarnate Son of God. That God Himself puts on flesh. This is not just any life. This is the life of the Messiah. This is the life of the Christ, the the anointed one, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, the one and only way to heaven. The one who would rip the curtains, who would present the sacrifice of himself before God, the father, who would take all of our pain, all of our sorrow, all of our sin on the cross and pay with his own blood to pay for our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse that we deserve uh, by becoming a curse for us. Those last hours on the cross, the total darkness where he receives the curse of God on himself. He pays the price that we owed for our sin to God. Carry on here. Verse eight, um, which he lavished upon us. Speaking of the grace, this grace has been lavished on us. Uh, It's been poured out. In other words, uh, where it's overflowing. Uh, it's, it's not just enough, just a little bit to just cover uh, the top. Like if you're, you know, my kids like like uh, like cinnamon rolls sometimes and they will put a little icing on top and then they fight. Uh, I just spread the icing out. I'm not paying attention. I walk off and then I come back and there's a huge fight at the at the kitchen counter because they're wanting the one with the most icing on it. Right. They're wanting the one with the most lavishing icing poured on top that covers the whole thing. So now I'm trying to care, be careful and make sure it's lavished over the whole thing. But this grace here is this lavishing where it's everything has been covered. Our sins have been completely forgiven, erased. It is pure grace that we are saved by him. So verse 8, this grace which was lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We've belabored this point in Hebrews, so I'm not going to go much more into this, but Christ is everything. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. It is in him that salvation comes. And that is the point here. It is, it, he is the climax of God's story, of God's salvation. It is all pointing to him. He has at the apex. It is all about Christ. This is the one and only high priest that he would ever provide for ultimate forgiveness of our sins. This is the one and only sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. It is in him. All right. So that's the point he's making here in verse 8 and 10. Verse 11 in him, we have obtained an inheritance. This is, this is amazing. Think about this for a moment. Verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. This, this verb here, something has already been done. We have acquired this. It cannot be taken away. Uh, it has been obtained. How have we received this? By Christ, our Savior. He has gone on, as we studied in Hebrews, there to be an anchor to our soul, soul that is tethered to us. He is in heaven, in our inheritance that is to come, and that we have obtained it. Now we are not, remember, citizens here. We are citizens in heaven. We're wandering through this earthly life for some years, some short, some longer than others. But ultimately and supremely all lives here stop our hearts our bodies are they fade they stop working but we have an inheritance that's not here that's not based on a 401k or your investments or how much money or how big your house is it's in heaven this is a our eternal home and that we have already obtained it so that we can rest knowing that this is not everything but we have obtained everything not we in and of ourselves but christ who did it for us so beautiful he says in him christ we have obtained an inheritance. What is this inheritance speaking of? Obviously, is speaking of heaven, our eternal home. Uh, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, giving, all, giving God all the glory for our salvation. We see that Christ is the one who brings about salvation. Christ is the one who receives all the glory for our salvation. Uh, Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Here he's referring to the Jews who originally believed in him. And he says to so that we were the first to hope in Christ. But look at verse 13. This is you. This is I. These are the Gentiles he was speaking to there in Ephesus. He says in him you also. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How are Jews saved? How are Gentiles saved? How are Corinthians, like when I'm not in the Bible, but me down the road, uh, Corinth, how are we saved? How are you saved? Well, there's only one way. Jesus is the way, the only way. And that's what is being said here. It says, we, he's talking of himself, we Jews were saved like this. And you also were saved the exact same way. Now, pay close attention to verse 13. He says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the gospel was presented by Paul. He presented that Christ and him alone, he is the source of salvation. It is only through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection that our sins can be atoned for. The same message 
is the exact same message that can save people in Pakistan, that can save people in the Ukraine, that can save people in England, that can save people in Alaska, that can save people in America. It is the exact same message. It is the gospel. They heard it. They believed it. And look at this. They were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, th- this, this vernacular that's used, the word is used here. I remind us of like a king who had an insignia ring, who would stamp on a wax seal, something that was to be delivered. And it was not to be opened until it was delivered to its final destination. And we see this, this type of image being used here, that we have been sealed by God. His Holy Spirit indwells in us. And that we are His property, and nothing can take that away. It cannot be broken until we are finally in His presence. So that we can rest that we have been sealed by God. The stamp is on our souls that we are his, he is ours, and this inheritance is ours as well. Um, Let me skip on down to verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? So we carry even verse 13 and verse 14 together here. We see that that we, we heard the gospel. We believe the gospel as God worked in our soul to bring us to him. And he, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And now verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This is ultimate peace. And this is how, why Paul opens up with grace and peace to you. And then he begins to explain what grace is. So we understand we do nothing to deserve it. We do nothing to earn it. It's all God. The peace that we have with God. Imagine this. We, we know that we are at peace with God if Christ is our Savior. And we don't have anything to worry about in this life or when this life is over. One of the greatest fears people have is death. They're scared to death of death. But we as believers should not have this fear because why? Because we have been sealed by God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I could guarantee you something, whatever I could come up with, or, or you buy a product that is guaranteed for a day or 10 days, or what if you got a lifetime guarantee on something, right? Something, something that was a lifetime guarantee. Now, that sounds great. That sounds fantastic. But in the end, it, it could fall. It, it could fail. Uh, maybe the company goes out of business. Next thing you know, your lifetime guarantee was worth a week or worth a few months, right? Because truly, we, what kind of guarantee can we make to each other? We are all humans. We are not eternal. But here, the eternal God, the very one who had your salvation in mind before the foundations of the earth, before a dirt molecule was made, says, you are mine I have stamped you. I have sealed you. I've put my spirit in you as a guarantee. And we're guaranteed by God himself that our salvation is secure. Let your mind wrap around that for a moment. A guarantee by God, the very one that spoke and created everything. The very one that that made us, that we've sinned against. We deserve his wrath, but yet he's guaranteed our salvation, all those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been rescued. We have been saved by him, and our salvation is secure. So what are we supposed to do with this information that we've just received here tonight? Well, we praise God. 
Solideo Gloria. To God be the glory alone. And it begins to open our mind up, as Paul's was, as that day as he was not pursuing Christ. He was going the opposite way. But God came in, gave him grace, gave him peace, made a man a saint who was trying to murder Christians. He knew he didn't deserve it. And he understood God's grace in such a beautiful way that he spent his life preaching and teaching on grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And he rejoices and he teaches others this as we should do as well. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that we do not deserve your grace, but you give it to us in Jesus Christ. That in him we can have forgiveness of sins. Our sins can be paid for. That we can be seen by you as righteous. We can be seen by you as holy. That we no longer get our record and our merit, lack of merit to get to heaven. But that we are rescued, we are saved by you. And it's to 100% your glory that our salvation has come. We worship you. We praise you as Paul did here in the opening of Ephesians. And we give all worship and glory to you for bringing about our salvation. I pray if there's anyone in here who has not uh, received Christ as their Savior, who has not believed in Him, as Ephesians was just talking to us about, then may today they hear the gospel, may they believe, and may they be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who will guarantee their inheritance to come. And for all those believers who are here, may we rest our souls on these passages. May there be this supreme rest of lavishing grace that overtakes us today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship God, please.